Hello and welcome to the Uncensored CMO. This is podcast number one. Woohoo! So very excited to be kicking off the uh, season one of the Uncensored CMO. We're going to get to the heart of what really works in marketing and what doesn't. And we're going to be having some truly uncensored conversations. Just before we do, I want to introduce you to a very important person, my producer, James. Welcome, James. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be asking John a few questions before every episode to really set up why he's got each guest on the podcast. What What's going to make this episode so uncensored and why do you need to listen to it? It's cool having James on board, actually, because uh, one of the things he's, he, he's amazing at actually working out the podcast and making it happen. But what he's especially good at is reminding me to be uncensored. So if you hear James ask a couple of challenging questions, that's to make sure I stick to my scripts and uh, don't get out of it. So, uh, yeah, you'll be hearing from him in the introduction to each podcast. So, John, the first episode of Uncensored CMO, who have we got? First episode, Richard Shotton. Why, why Richard Shotton? Well, like, basically, the reason, reason I want Richard on is that effectively as a marketer, you're trying to change behavior of your consumers, right? And it's really hard to do. But actually what he's got is some of the nuggets for things you didn't think work that do work and things that you thought worked that don't work. Because if you go on the data, you'll get it wrong. You know, if you go on what people say, not on what people do, you'll get it wrong. You cannot predict people's behavior. They don't act according to rational thought. Yeah, and I've I've got to say before before we met Rich to record this episode, um, I hadn't read the book, and it took me to meet him and find out about some of the content of the book that made me read it. I thought it was brilliant. It was fascinating yeah. um, for for anyone in the industry. And then I started speaking to some people about reading it, and one of my friends who works in advertising said everyone in marketing and advertising should read it it's really underrated and you can see why because as you say he really breaks down he does complex issues into is it 25 yeah 20. i think it's 25 i mean when, when i see the kind of more scientific or kind of more academic books uh, you know that i get a bit intimidated i have to say i kind of go oh no this is going to be really hard work i've got to think really deeply he's done the thinking for you He's done all the research, all the thinking. He's read, he's read the research reports and he's distilled it into something you can action. And we're all busy, right? Everyone's busy. But you can sit on a tube, listen to my interview with him, or you can read the book. And you can read a chapter at a time. It takes about 10 minutes to read a chapter. I was going to say, book. each individual yeah. chapter is its own book in itself. It is. It's its own it's useful, so easy. useful. Yeah. So if, you want to, uh, if you want to sound clever in a marketing room, just quote one of his behavioral science myths. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you're going to get, like, everyone's going to go, oh, they know what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> so it's a top. It's like a top hack for any marketeer. In ten minutes, you can sound clever and yeah. and know more than the person sat next to you. It's a bit like a superpower, right? Because the ability to understand why people really do what they mm -hmm. do is a superpower, and that's what all marketers should have. That superpower, because what people say and what people do are not the same do, thing. Do you think marketers don't get it then, or is it? I think someone marketers else? are too busy. Well, I, marketers are too lazy because they, they they rely on what they're told and and like marketing kind of you know classic marketing training, or they're too busy to go and kind of go and read it. I, I read in the teams I've run, I've always bought people books right and said read this, you should read this, you know, and it's I always watch the people that read and people that don't, and it's probably. 10 or 20 percent of the people i give books to actually come back and go oh wow i read that i learned a mm. lot and here are five things i'm going to do differently so if you want competitive advantage as a brand manager get reading because you'll have a you'll learn a ton of stuff that your colleagues won't know or your competitors won't know so it's competitive advantage as well as mm. a superpower what what did you talk about in the episode 
Well, loads of th- loads of things quite surprise you actually, like you know why you should drink beer out of a branded glass. I mean, that's just one of those things that seems you know. I used to think it was a waste of money buying all this point of sale because you, you spend millions as a brand manager on all this point of sale. I think does it work? But actually, he's done studies that show when people drink from branded glassware, they assume it's more expensive. They assume it tastes better, and they assume it's more expensive. Mm-hmm. So it's it's things like that are fascinating. Or, I mean, the, one of the classic other ones is. Uh, is that the pain of cash? Oh, that, which, this is my. I know this part. could change your life. Yeah. Like, you, you could genuinely like save a ton of money just by doing this. Go if you go out for an evening, take cash because there's actually a physical pain you feel when you hand cash to somebody else that you don't get with a card, and you certainly don't get with contactless. And because what the finance companies are trying to do is make spending money as pain-free as possible because all the data will show you you'll spend more money than you have right so if you want to save some money pay cash definitely they may not accept it of course because the places that don't accept cash nowadays but it's definitely definitely a way to go definitely but anyway without further ado let's get into it so i'm delighted to introduce you to richard shop big fan of the book it was one of my favorite reads last year um and uh, really enjoyed it so i'm so excited that you've uh, you've agreed to come on and talk a bit more about it um just for the listeners out there give us uh, a bit of an intro to you your career how on earth did you end up getting here just give us a sense of um so, so at the moment i uh, have just set up a company called astro 10 so it advises brands on how to apply behavioral science to advertising but i started in advertising 20 years ago as a media planner. Uh, Worked there for a while, then I moved into research, then I specialized in behavioral science. And about a year ago, I made the leap to working for myself. Wow. Now, I I, I imagine if anyone's out there like me, you've always thought it would be amazing to work for myself. And um, I've done a bit of freelancing recently, so I've got a little bit of insight into that kind of feeling of the jump you make and the uncertainty. How was it for you making that decision to go from kind of, I guess, regular, Paid employment, you know, a job title everyone understands. It was certainly something like agonised over. I agonised over it for quite a long time, and actually, once I made the the leap, it worked out. It worked out well. I think if people are thinking about it, the single best thing I probably did was uh, not go from five days a week at an agency or onto my own. What I did was a little bit of a halfway house. I, for about six months, did three days the agency in two days setting up my own business. And that was a really good way in, of being able to test out whether there was genuine appetite for a behavioral science consultancy. And I think if it hadn't worked out, I could have easily, you know, slightly embarrassing, but I could have slipped back into the agency and gone back to five days a week. If I had gone completely freelance, that safety net would have probably been removed. Because however well it ends, I think once you've left an agency, it's quite hard to, to go back. You know, They'll fill the headcount very quickly. So, so let, let's move on to talk about the book as well, because the um, now I imagine again, if you're like me, writing a book is something you always dream of doing, and think, oh, you know, I've, yeah. I've got this great idea for a book, and wouldn't it be brilliant? Um, so, when did you start? When did the idea come to you? I want to write a book, and t- talk us through that, and how long does it take? And were you working evenings and weekends to do it, and that sort of thing? Uh, so, it, it wasn't. It, there was a little bit of chance and stumbling into it. I originally started by writing articles started writing a lot of articles and there was an element of laziness behind that in that 
I was l- looking after the Insight team at Zenith, and we did a lot of experiments with brands, running our own experiments to show how they could apply behavioural science to advertising. And what would often happen is, let's say someone from like the Toyota team or the Lexus team would come over and say, oh, you did that social proof experiment for Carling a, f- a few months ago. Where is it? Can we take it and show our client? And what would generally happen is I'd go through my files, either not be able to find the experiment or it would just be three images in a PowerPoint deck. So I couldn't remember what it was about. So I thought, well, look, if I write it up as an article once I've run the experiment, send that to campaign or MediaTel or Marketing Week, then there's a record. And when people come and pester me wanting the detail, I could just send them the article. So it was meant to be a bit of a, uh, a kind of lazy way of avoiding work. And then after about a year of doing that, I had this huge range of articles, 100-odd articles, and I thought, well, why don't I try and turn that into, in, 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 into a so, book? So you'd effectively already written the book in one sense, or you'd already got the content yeah, well, in a different form, but ready to go. It never quite works out quite so simply. So my original plan was just to take those articles, dump them in a book, and then you know, just move on to the next projects. But once I'd found a publisher who was interested and they'd offered me a, a, a contract, I then thought, well, look, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it properly. And essentially, I started again. I rewrote all those. Um, uh, all the, I, re-ro- I rewrote the book from scratch, but it covered a lot of the experiments I'd, I'd already run. And where did the name come from? How did it, what was the inspiration behind the name? Uh, do you know what? I, I, I think I suggested... I think the name I had in my mind was Decision Day. And the name came from the, the publisher. Um, their thought being, Decision Day is a great reflection of the book if you've yeah. read it, but actually it doesn't really tell people uh, who, are, who you know, might spot the cover what it's about. So that their feeling, that was one of the things they changed, their feeling was, it was a, that, that was a much better advert for the book, The Choice yeah. Factor, and I'm, gl- I'm glad I listened. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it really yeah. good. Um, one other thing that I, I remember... Probably back end of last year, BBH decided to run a World Cup of books, which yeah, is yeah. an amazing idea. Is it, I, I, was it during the World Cup they did this? I, or around it, the World Cup? It was, do you know what? I, I can't remember if the, the timing was slightly off or not, but I, th- I think you're right. It might have been it was, just I think after it was the World just Cup. Start, just yeah, before, just yeah, after. Yeah. It, it was kind of when mm. it was all top of mind and top, yeah. of, wasn't it? And uh, they got the 20, 30, 40 or so best yeah. business books yeah. right, of all time. Best books, business books about advertising. About advertising, yeah, so yeah of, of all time. And they, they, they like put them in groups and then they had a vote and then they go through to qualification and, and you know, through to the final, this kind of thing. So where, where did you come on that? So I won that, uh, luckily. Um, it, was, it was fantastic. So I, I was honoured that they picked the Choice Factory to go. I think it was in the, you know, the group, the 32 books they selected. Then they had a group stage uh, and, and I think and knocked out... Uh, Hegarty on come advertising on, and Claude, oh, Claude Hopkins you, you from the 1920s. You knocked out Hegarty? Yeah. Yes. Is that, didn't their algorithm kind of like <laughs> yeah. override that? I, 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 Surely. I was, I was worried, but no, no. Well, they, 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 they let you back in the building. Yeah, it was they, like, they, okay, you know, we'll rescind uh, our victory. <laughs> so it's brilliant. That, that was actually, I think that was one of the best, the, the best bits of publicity for the book have been some lovely quotes yeah. that people like Roy Sutherland, Dave Trott and Mark Ritson uh, have provided. But I think the other single best thing was winning that. Oh, it's brilliant! Uh, it was um, it was so engaging, and mm. the amount of engagement that yeah. that exercise did, yeah. and the way it promoted the book, I think was fantastic. So that that I think helps publicise it, and then the book in turn helps me set up yeah. my company, because I always knew the book would be good publicity, 
But what I hadn't expected was its biggest single benefit is probably as a, a screening mechanism. And I hadn't really th thought this through when I wrote it, which is if a marketing director or a CMO reads it and they think it's crap, then they'll never bother to contact me. If a marketing director reads it and they like it, well, then they get in touch with a potential project. So suddenly I've gone from dealing with clients with variable interests in behavioral science and I spent a lot of my time just trying to persuade them in general this was a, a relevant topic to now just really dealing with people who, who agree with me that there's a lot of potential there and our sole discussion is well how how do we practically apply it to our particular challenges and that's made life a lot lot easier amazing mm. great marketing tool for you so what is so, okay so take uh, take your book off the table just for now if you could name one book that has influenced your thinking, your career more than any other book, um, what would it be? It's hard to pick one. I, mean, I think there are lots of brilliant behavioural science books. I mean, you've already mentioned Rory Sutherland. He's been a, a huge influence. I think people like Dave Trott have been a, a massive influence as well. But if there was one book that is an amazing book that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in psychology, and it's called Irrationality. Okay. And it was by Stuart Sutherland. Um, brilliant book, very, very simply, clearly written, hugely wide-ranging, covers this vast uh, array of different experiments. And just a symptomatic of how good it is, it went out of print a few years ago, and people in the know liked it so much that it was trading hands on things like eBay for up to 100 quid. You know, so testament, I think, to quite how good it is. Um, so that, I think, if you read one book on psychology... And I, I know when we were chatting before, you were mm. saying that one of his abilities is to make complex ideas amazingly simple. And I, I think that's a, a real, real gift. It's, it's certainly something that your book does incredibly well. Oh, uh, well. Thank you. That, I mean, that was one of the, the, the kind of the three things I wanted to do with the book were uh, I was frustrated that a lot of writing in marketing in general, but maybe behavioral science and marketing as well, is more complex than it needs to be. You know, and as you say, what ideally wanted was to make complex subject matters simple rather than make simple and, and, and also this is true for advertising because uh, you know I, I, I've measured and tracked lots of kind mm. of campaigns I've run over the years and it's amazing how we overcomplicate messages you know we and it's almost the more messages you put into an advert the less anything's remembered sort of thing so th th there's a as a general principle of advertising keep it simple is kind of like rule number one isn't it yeah absolutely um one of the areas in this I did this after the Choice Factory, so it doesn't feature in the Choice Factory, but there's this lovely idea by uh, a psychologist at Lafayette College called Matthew McGlone, and he's come up with the Keats heuristic, the idea that uh, rhyming phrases are more believable than non-rhyming phrases. And I, wonderful methodology behind it. I took that methodology, reran it with a slight twist with a colleague, and we show not only are rhyming phrases more believable, they're also much, much more memorable yeah. than non-rhyming phrases. So why I think this relates back to what you were just saying is if you think about the history of advertising, that used to be a staple yeah. of advertising. You know, great uh, classic uh, adverts, um, Les Bobber with a hover, uh, we all adore a cure, uh, coughs and sneezes spread diseases. People, creative directors used to regularly use rhyme to um, make their message as memorable as possible. Again, I went down, that's not just anecdotal from me. 
I went to the newspaper archives and looked at newspapers through the years, and there has been a very steep decline in the use of rhyme. So it, I'm quoting from memory here, but it was about 30% of print ads in the 70s, the strap line rhymed, down to about 5% wow. in the last because actually, as you were saying that, I, I, I cannot think of a rhyme. Oh, I'm, I'm oh sat yeah, here going, yeah, yeah. thinking all the, all the ads over the last year I've seen, oh. I, I, I can't think of one. But, but what's fascinating is that the research that proves the effectiveness of rhyme is not old. I mean, I think the McGlone study might have been turn of the, you know, 1998, 2000. The stuff we did was two years ago. So rhyme is still effective from a consumer perspective. It's marketers and ad agencies, creative agencies who are low. It's just not it. trendy, is it? Well, that's yeah. that, that, that would be my suggestion that um, it is, you don't come across as sophisticated. You don't signal to your peers how excellent you are by using Rhyme as a creative director. Because I, I, guess, I guess we're so caught up with going, what's next? What's the future? Here are the trends. Everything's changing. And we forget that actually most things don't change. And actually, we've thrown out a lot of good practice in the past. I mean, another example, I know this is kind of coming on to another chapter in the book about distinctiveness as well, is that all those classic mascots and logos and, and I, I guess, I mean, System 1, they call them fluent devices, you know, yeah. like the Go Compare guy and this sort of thing. Um, I think, I think there's a study showing that in IPA effectiveness papers, 40% 10 years ago had a fluent device, you know, had a distinctive yeah. asset, as, as Byron Sharp would call it, and it's down to 11% now. So again, those kind of things that probably if you're a creative and ad agency, you turn your nose at, like the meerkats and this kind of thing, incredibly effective and memorable and, and distinctive and make advertising work. It, it, but So like rhyming and distinctiveness, it, there's, a, there's a number of things that have gone out of fashion that I think... You know, you could probably write a book on oh. things that are out of fashion that shouldn't be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a lovely idea from a guy called Stephen Ross called The Principal Agent Problem. And he talks about um, that there is a difference of interest between the principal and the agent and all sorts of problems stem from this. So the principal is the, uh, the business or the shareholder and the agent is the marketer or the employee. And he argues the principal wants long-term, sustainable, profitable growth. And yes, the marketer and the agency want that as well, but they also want other things, you know, to signal their sophistication to their peers, to get the admiration of their peers, to, to have safe career progression. And if you look, I think a lot of issues in advertising are uh, due to this problem, this divergence of interest between the characters involved, and that's all of us, that's consultants, that's startups like me, that's creative agencies, media agencies, marketers, but they're own interests, I think, sometimes crowd out Do you know what the that right is behavior. fascinating. I, I remember a situation relatively mm. recently where um, we tested an old ad and it was an absolutely, you know, knocked out of the park, five-star ad, absolutely yeah. brilliant. But the brand team working on it insisted on creating a new ad. And I was like, guys, this is madness, right? You've got a proven success on your hands. But, you know, the team were quite young, quite new, wanted to make their mark, believed that you know, it was no longer as trendy as it was and the consumer had seen it loads and yep. of course it hadn't. You know, uh, and, yes. and, and this is interesting, you see. So, you know, again, familiarity often breeds contentment, doesn't it? The more you see it, the more you yeah. familiar, the better it is. But the temptation that, uh, you know, as particularly in marketing where people don't, you know, people rotate jobs so quickly, CMO 10 years reduced, that, that so much is thrown out that shouldn't be. Uh, uh, absolutely. The, and I, I think this... Uh, it's got a good six months old, but um, I saw a 
study quite recently, and it was American data, and it was just the biggest companies, but it showed the tenure of uh, CMOs. And the headline, which was bad enough, was I think along the lines of average uh, tenure is four years. But then if you dug into the data, they looked at the median tenure, and that, I think, was 27 months. So if, if someone that's, takes... That's, that's fi- does that mean that 50% of CMOs... Because the median would be the halfway point. Yes, yeah, yeah. If you line them up all in line, so 50% will be having less Less than than 27 months. And I think the reason the median is important is if you think about premiership managers, the mean would have been skewed by your Wenger and your Ferguson. What much more, I think, useful to know is the median. median, Much more useful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then 27 months, if you then think people are probably preparing to get a new job for about a, a year, well, They've only been the job of a year, a year and a half before they're thinking well, about their next move. Well, the they've av- got to the prove things plan is, is 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so you've got one marketing right? plan. So yeah. you've, got, yeah. you, you've done one yeah. plan. Yeah. You've probably not even seen the results of the first plan you wrote yet yeah. by the time you, you're kind of moving on. The, the, inter- the other interesting thing, parallel, and I know, I know you tweeted about this the other day, is the average agency-client relationship has also followed the same trend, hasn't it, over the last 10 yeah. years? Yeah, so, so the, I mean, actually, the, the, the CMO, it wasn't necessarily... A trend. It'd been quite a long time that had this very so it was a uh, very short um, uh, time period. The IPA data was longer, t- uh, uh, sorry, stretched over a longer time period. And I think that showed from the 1980s to 2013, there had been this very precipitous drop in average agency tenure. I think it was down to about about four years. Yeah. Um, neither of which is going to help. Um, uh, with a, a focus on long-term well, you effectiveness. Lose, you lose all the knowledge and, and, and everything gets and rewritten, strategies yeah. get, you know... And you have your, your own personal interest. It's not in the long-term success of the brand. It's, it's it, the need to do something quickly. That means more short-termism and, mm. and the whole thing goes. The other one you mentioned, which was fascinating, was you mentioned around people getting bored with the approach. So this isn't necessarily their own uh, self-interest, but maybe a difference of their experience to the to their consumer and there's a lovely idea from a psychologist called uh, Lee Ross called the false consensus effect mm. and he makes the argument that whatever experiences beliefs or behaviors we have we extrapolate those onto other people so a simple study I did to show this was uh, asking people firstly what proportion of the population do they think have an iPhone and then later on saying to them, do you own an iPhone? And what we saw was that, and again, these figures from memory, they won't be exactly right, but that when people owned an iPhone, they thought about 60% of the population had one. When they didn't own an iPhone, they thought about 40% of the population oh, they had. They couldn't yeah. help but put their own experience yes. onto to everyone else. And actually, in talking of yeah. iPhones, wh- one, of yeah. one of my favourite examples from your book Ooh, yes. is, is the ear, is the, e, yeah. the earphones. Yeah. Because when, as if you, you know, if you go back 10 years when the iPod was became a thing, mm. um, I think, you know, um, I, iPod was by nowhere near the market leader. But by having white earphones, Absolutely. suddenly when you're on the tube and you see half the tube wearing these white earphones, you know exactly what they're wearing. It's, Incredible. Yeah. Oh, you so know, so one so small thing yes. made uh, an incredible difference to, uh, um, to Apple. So, a- a- absolutely. And I think I, lo- I really like the iPhone, uh, sorry, iPod example, in that um, it's based on this well known idea of social proof. So, the idea that when we make decisions, we are not discreet, 
atomized indiv individuals. We look around to what others are doing, and what becomes what is seen to be popular becomes more popular still. So it's based on a very, very well-known idea. There's lots of experimentation behind it. Cialdini's done experiments, Christakis, Fang, uh, the Pavel Insights team, so very well proven. But when it comes to brands applying that insight, most brands, I think, apply social proof in a very, very literal way. Yeah. They go out and very rationally uh, say, you know, we're Britain's favourite lager or we, are, uh, you know, we sell a million chocolate bars a month. What was interesting about Apple was it's the implicit uh, suggestion that they were popular long before they actually were. And I think that lateral approach to using these biases is a better guide yeah. to marketers oh, than a very rigid literal approach. It's actually very, very early in my career, so we're kind of going back probably about 20 years. I was working at Britvic and we launched J2O, which at the time, you know, when, when you couldn't buy, all you could get is, you know, Coke and Pepsi on dispense, a very poor quality, the very little choice for soft drinks. And um, <clears throat> we launched J2O in, in a kind of 330ml bottle, no, 275ml, you know, beer bottle style. And one of the things was that the, the bottle actually had a little bit too much in it, which actually was fascinating because what it meant was um, when, when you took your, your normal 250ml glass yeah. and you put ice in, uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah, put yeah, J2O in, yeah. as the publican, you had to hand the bottle over. Yeah. So suddenly, everyone in the pub knew you were drinking a J2O. Yeah. Whereas before then, with dispense, you fill it up, obviously, to the level that you need to fill it up in the glass. And, and, no and one knows what yeah, you're drinking. And your success is invisible. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it, fascinating. And mm. I mean, Magnus is a bit... Same thing at Pour Over the Ice. You know, yeah. By filling the glass with the ice, suddenly you've got to hand the bottle over and there you have the yeah. you know, equivalent of your iPad iPod if. I, mean, I think that is a, I think, I, I love the, the J2O example. Um, Magna's also, so not only did they make their success visible by the fact that because it was over ice, the bottle had to remain out, so it felt pretty far more popular than it actually was. They also, I think, emphasised um, that factor by launching regionally. So rather than spread themselves thinly across the country, they, I think they launched in... Scotland, then they went to another region, so forth, and they concentrated in that area. So they, they created this sense of uh, momentum and popularity. Sorry for uh, interrupting the conversation there. Um, I hope you're enjoying it. I just wanted to take a quick uh, moment just to tell you what's coming up in the next episode. So next time we have got Adam Morgan from Eat Big Fish, the guru when it comes to challenger brands. And there is so much in that podcast that I know you're going to absolutely love about how to create a challenger brand, what do you do when you've got no money, and how do you turn your constraint into opportunity, um, and even why the Japanese fall asleep in meetings. So look, it's all there. It's a really exciting podcast, so do tune back in and find out more from Adam Morgan, Eat Big Fish, on the second episode of the Uncensored CMO. Um, let me ask you a, a few questions then, because um, I want to test you out and see how much of your own advice do you take? <laughs> Not much. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you carry card or cash? Uh, I have little cash on me. I carry card. Now, uh, that's quite interesting, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. If you're into behavioural science. Um, so I, I'd be advised to go out for a night out with you. It would be quite good, wouldn't it? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Tell, yes, me, more about, they're, they're, tell me more about the cash versus so card. So there's an idea around the pain of payment. Essentially, the closer... If you pay with cash, you're far more price sensitive than you are if you're paying by, by card. Um, that's been shown by people like uh, Semester 
I'm particularly interested in this because one of the very first experiments I ever did with a wonderful researcher called Claire Linford, we went out and, and wondered whether this was applicable to contactless cards. Yeah. So contactless cards at that stage had just kind of been introduced. Um, and what we were interested in doing at the time was trying to run what we called fast and frugal experiments. So imagining we had no budget from the client, you know, we might be able to have 50 quid or 200 quid or 100 quid on expenses. So what we did to study this pain of payment was go out to uh, stand outside coffee shops, delis, mini marts uh, on, on the high street. As people left those shops, we stopped them and said, can we ask you three questions? How much have you just spent? What means of payment have you just used? And can we see your receipt? And then we compared memory of spend with their actual spend, so the receipt with what they thought they'd spent. And then split that data by means of payment. So cash, most people knew what they'd spent. About about 75% of people knew what they'd spent. Um, But when they didn't, they uh, overestimated their spend. Credit card, when they were using chip or pin, uh, chip and pin, sorry, they, about 66% knew exactly what they'd spent and the remainder was likely to underestimate, as overestimate, and then contactless, less than half of people could remember and they tend to underestimate their spend. So there was a swing of about, I think it was 10 to 15% between memory of spend with cash and memory of spend with contactless. So our argument to a lot of retailers we were working with at the time was, look, you can, you know, you know that value is hugely important in getting people to return to store. But if you want to be pedantic, it's not value that matters, it's memory of value. And you can either change that by cutting your price, but that's you know, hugely damaging to your margins, or you introduce contactless terminals, people remember you as better value and therefore they're more I, likely I, to return. I, you know, I generally, I think making things easy mm. is probably one of the biggest strategic ideas out there, isn't it? Because exactly right, make it easy. I mean, it's like... Like big issue, people having contactless payments sort of thing, isn't it? Oh, you know, a, it's like a, a, I'm scrabbling around going, oh, if I had two pounds, I would, you know, yeah. but contactless done, yeah. you know? So th- there's a, I think it's, yeah, far broader than contactless, uh, making your product easy to buy, making it a default purchase, making it subscription, not keep on expecting people to return to pay, um, stripping out the steps in the product journey, all of that will not only have a big effect, there are some lovely experiments which show they will have a bigger e- effect than most people expect. So again, this one isn't in the. I don't think it. No, I don't think it's in the in the book. Um, it's a lovely study by Bergman and Rogers in 2017, and they work with the Department of Education, and they are launching a new service for parents. So it's this wonderful service that if you sign up for, um, you are sent tips and hints on how to encourage your kids to revise properly and people who sign up for it they see their kids grades improve by 10% so it's phenomenally effective but what Bergman and Rogers do is persuade the Department of Education to launch it in one of three ways so either the hard way where people are texted all the strengths of the service but then told if they want to sign up they have to go to a website and fill in a page form and 1% of people sign up next version was the simplified version exactly the same text about the benefits but this time it's easier to sign up they're told you just have to text the word start and in that scenario 8% of people sign up and then the final really really easy one 
is the auto-enrolled version where people are given the same information, they're told they're enrolled, unless they text back, text back the word stop. And in that scenario, 96% of people R- sign up. That's a massive it's difference. It's a massive that's difference. Huge. Now, the clever bit, though, is... So, you've got first of all, you've got this swing from 1% to 96% yeah. based on the ease of sign-up. But then what they do is they go and find experts in education. It's like administrators, teachers, head teachers. And they, tr- they get those experts to predict what they think the effect <laughs> of these sign-up mechanisms will be. And people, of course, you know, these people aren't idiots. Of course, they get the general direction right. They know that friction... But presumably, they didn't get the magnitude. No, no, no way. Right, right. So I think it was along the lines of they think that about 39% of people will sign up in the uh, hard version, you know, say 48 in the easier version, and I think they think 65% in the um, auto-enrolment. So that's a swing. They think they, they estimate a swing of 26 percentage points, but it's actually 95 percentage points. And Bergen and Rogers argue that this happens again and again and again. In lots of different areas, experts assume that it's the content that matters, not that's the so ease of showing up. And I'm sure that, that happens that's in really, marketing it, again It reminds again. me, I wish I could remember where I read this, because <laughs> you'll you probably be able to tell me afterwards, actually. But um, I, I read this case of a, that there was a, there was a, there was a, a a spread of a disease or something at a campus in a university in America somewhere. Mm. And the doctors wanted to try and... The doctors needed to get the students to just get a simple vaccine that would that would basically prevent it. And so what they decided to do is, at the beginning of each lecture, uh, show, do a warning to the students, say, look, we've seen the spread of this virus on campus. Please get yourself vaccinated. So they went out and they, they, they did the message and virtually no one signed up. So they got together and thought, what are we going to do? We've got to make the message stronger. So they, they, they then, the second time they did it, they actually showed pictures of what happens to you if you don't get it treated and the horrible sores and, and, and all the rest of it came out. And they thought, this is gonna, this is gonna work. Nothing happened. And then eventually in the third time, what they did is they didn't say any of that. They put a map of where yeah, the doctor yes. was. <laughs> so it, it's a, that, the message didn't matter. People, that wasn't the problem they solved. Yeah. Well, where do I go? I think, yeah, I think that's as simple a, as that, um, so make it easy. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, a study by uh, Leventhal around, uh, where, as you say, the, they putting these really scary images, I think it might have been tetanus, putting really scary stories about the potential effects, change people's claim about their fear and that they were going to get vaccinations, but it didn't change their behaviour. It was the fear plus the map that was hugely useful. And the, the fascinating bit, I think, in the study was that these were second and third year students. So everyone knew where the... Oh, that's even more um, interesting then. The so GPs, yeah, or whatever they, they call it was. Yeah. But it was that uh, just very, very simple way of making it slightly easier, yeah. indicating them that they had to actually go and do something, yeah. something now. That's really um, interesting. Mm. So um, if you're listening, you won't be able to realise realize this. Oh, so if you're listening, you won't, won't realise this. But uh, Richard and I are enjoying a nice Brewdog Punk IPA as we chat, which is uh, the best way to do a podcast. Um, but uh, I'd like to ask you, so when you're enjoying a nice hoppy IPA, which I think is your uh, preferred beer of choice, yeah. um, what kind of glass do you drink it out of? I, I, uh, I do have my... I have a nice kind of... Uh, uh, flute almost type thing that my nice. my mum got me for Christmas. So I do have a, I have a, Cause, cause I do have a special glass. The glass matters it apparently, does, it does, doesn't it? it? Does. I didn't realise this until. Uh, uh, in fact, it, I think because we're 
two minutes away from Russell Square. I think we might have done this study in Russell Square. Uh, it's certainly one of the parks around here. One of the earlier studies I did with a, a couple of colleagues, I think Spencer Corrigan and uh, Anna Candace we gave people uh, beer and got them to rate how much they liked the taste of it. And we did a range of different, very popular lagers. And then sometimes we gave them in a plastic glass, sometimes in a glass glass, and sometimes in a brandy glass. And we saw that the liking of the, the beer, and it, people only got it once, so you know, different people would get different glasses, but the average rating of the beer went up significantly as the glass got fancier. So it was partly an experiment to see if the massive investment brewers make in branded glasses was worthwhile. Um, but then there were lovely nuances to it that if you were a big brewer, I think Carlsberg or a Heineken, it didn't really make that much difference to serve. Whereas if you were a smaller beer, mm-hmm. um, it made a huge difference. You know, it might be a 50% improvement in, in a taste. And our thought was that's because the serve at that moment accounts for a much bigger proportion of your knowledge of the beer. That you know, If you've drunk Carlsberg a thousand times, you've seen all their sponsorships, you've yeah. seen all their ads, yeah. what the glass uh, you're drinking out of doesn't really matter. If you've got limited knowledge of a brand, you're giving mu- your, your expectation of what it's going to yeah. taste like is far more Because I also, I also think a, 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 ta- a brilliant tactic for any beer brand is mm. make your glass as stealable as yeah, yeah, easy yeah, to yeah, steal yeah, as yeah, possible, yeah, yeah, right? Because you've got a poster in the home. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. advertising at home, isn't yeah. it? For about a pound or whatever they cost yes. to make. So that'd be brilliant. Um, let's, let's move on to um, what is probably my favourite uh, behavioural science. Um, with the pratfall effect. Oh, yes, now, this brilliant. is interesting because... Would it be better for this podcast to be rated... <laughs> I'm being brave now. Uh, would it be better for this podcast <laughs> to be rated a full five stars or a 4.5 star? Yeah, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. uh, there is a... Please, if you're listening now, please give me a five-star <laughs> rating. There is a, um, there's a... There's a study done by Northwestern University. Huge study. 111,000 product reviews, 22 product categories. And what they found was that, to begin with, as you would expect, if the review of a product gets better, people are more likely to purchase it. But for every one of the 22 categories they looked at, Somewhere between, uh, there was a point at which if the reviews got any better, then like to purchase began to decline. And for the product categories they looked at, the peak point was between 4.2 and 4.5. Their argument was, this is an example of the pratfall effect that we find people or products uh, that exhibit a flaw more appealing. And in particular, their argument was, if you get perfect scores it's just unbelievable yeah you know, what do people take out do they really you think assume it's doctored and yeah. it's, it, it what's, can't what's, what's more likely right. this yeah. if this podcast just got five star reviews what's more likely that the podcast is better than anyone that's ever been made or that someone's been uh, being a bit naughty with yeah, the editing they've, of the they've bought an army yeah, 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 of five-star yeah, yeah. reviewers. Yes, you yes. Know, I'm, I'm sure so there's an app so for that. You know, give yeah, me a five-star. I'm, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it unleashes a, cynic, a kind of cynicism. So it would be interesting to know. I, I don't think their study ever looked at podcasts, and I'm sure it is category-dependent. Ah, so I think the... Okay. I'm sure the general point of it not being five is true. Yeah whether it's 4.5, 4.7, 4.8, that's the kind of peak point 
that that's a bit of interesting um so rather random question then um how many cans of soup did you last buy in a supermarket uh, I the last time I bought some soup, I was on holiday. I bought a, a single. You only bought a, a single, single, a single okay. bottle of gaspacho. Okay, I was in Spain. But you yeah. should have bought four. Should, well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if it was, obviously it wasn't on offer. If it was on offer, yeah. So this, but no, there's an interesting yeah. effect there, isn't there? Is, there, about there is um, the limiting limiting availability. Yes, so can have impacts, can't it? From that slightly controversial um, psychologist, one thing, he did a he did a study in Iowa where they worked with a number of supermarkets. And in all those supermarkets, Campbell's soup was reduced from 89 cents to 79 cents. And he did three scenarios. First scenario, that was all there was, that simple discount. And on average, people buy 3.3 cans. Second scenario, um, same discount, but people are told the maximum they can buy is four cans. And on average, the purchase goes to 3.5 cans. And then the final scenario, people are told same discount, but this time the maximum number of cans you can buy is 12. And in that scenario, the average purchase volume jumps to, I think, six or seven. So what ha is happening here is two different biases. Firstly, scarcity. People want what they can't have. And I think the body language of this deal is quite different when there's a restriction on how much you can buy. So most people are pretty cynical about discounts, you know, is this really a discount or do they pump up the price just to drop it down? If a brand doesn't let you take as much as you want, then suddenly people are thinking, well, this might, must be why? a damn yeah, good why, deal. Well, why? Because it must you be know, hurting them. They don't want their competitors yeah. to buy it off yeah, them yeah, or, you know, yeah. something or like that. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really, you know, uh, expensive offer from them. And then the final thing that's interacting in that final version is anchoring this idea that if you throw out a number, even in a, rele in a relevant number, it affects people behave, people's behaviour. So what's happening is, you mentioned that number 12. People know they don't want 12 cans of soup. It's far too much. Oh, interesting. They adjust down, yeah, but they adjust yeah. from that starting point of 12, and they don't adjust to far enough. So it ends up oh, that's interesting. Uh, uh, affecting their behaviour. And that, that idea of anchoring has been shown. I mean, what I love that is it's such a simple mm. behavioural insight that yeah. could have yes. massive impacts yeah. on your sales. And I, I've s that, because uh, as we said, it was it's like controversial professor, um, that same idea has been applied by Ogilvy and I think KFC, yeah. and apologies if I'm with Don's, but they had this idea of bringing the terms and conditions, the legal constraints to the very front of the advertising. And on one of their campaigns, it was I think a great deal for, let's say chicken McNuggets or something. Um, and in the, in, the, in the terms and conditions, it said you can only have you know, s I don't know, 24 per visitor. 24 uh, chicken nuggets. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, this is I'm, great angle. This is angry. But basically, they bought whatever the hard limit yeah. was, rather than it being this tiny little point wow. in the terms and conditions. That was the headline. That became the headline. Poster. And that was one of the most, I think, successful campaigns that Ogilvy uh, changed it out there. So it works both in you know, this psychological experiment, but also it can work commercially for brands. So ju just changing tack just slightly is um, gets an end here. What do you? How, what has your experience been of brands adopting behavioural science? Have you seen any brands that you look at and go, they, they've really got it. They're clever. You know, they're using the insights very powerfully. So, so I think it's often 
individual instances of brands using it brilliantly rather than one brand constantly. You're not seeing a brand particularly I don't, think, I, I don't think so. I think, yeah. I think it's more very that. But you've got examples like Nespresso's use of price relativity to boost its uh, people's willingness to pay. I think it's an amazing example. Um, we talked about the pratfall effect, you know, the classic ads of you know, Stella-ish or inexpensive. Guinness could things come to those who wait would be brilliant examples of that. Apple and social proof. I think it's more a case of some brands uh, on individual campaigns doing it brilliantly, rather than anyone doing it consistently. Because it's because it's it's a it's a it could be a complex thing like marketing to to a point. Well, I think I think you know to, to, to kind of almost come back full circle. I think what I, I really loved about the book is that you touch so many different parts of the marketing mix with such simple insights that it's almost whatever brand you're working on, you'll, you'll find a, a real nugget of an insight and you think that will be quite easy well, to I think that is a factor of the, the topic I'm d- discussing. So social psychology, behavioral science, is the study of how people make decisions. Yeah. So if you are trying to persuade people, there will be an experiment out there that will help you persuade them more effectively. Uh, you know, there's also 130 years of psychology experiments. There are thousands and thousands of experiments. Whatever area of marketing, category, approach you have, there's going to be an, an experiment out there that Brilliant. will, if not solve the problem, give you a different, you know, at least help you solve it. And, and actually, what, one of the reasons I love reading books, listening to podcasts is there's almost nothing that's not been thought of or, or, or a challenge that's not been faced. And there's so much out there. And I'm always amazed at how, in the marketing teams I've worked with in my career, how few people actually spend time reading and researching. And, and it's absolute gold dust and uh, you know it's it's i'd encourage anybody listening that you know if, if you're not regularly reading you should because there's there's so much wisdom experience out there and uh, people uh, are happy to you absolutely. know make and it available if people are interested in advertising history the i mean there's amazing books like um anatomy of humbug by paul felgrick the other one that i love is dave dye does a podcast called stuff from the loft oh, it's got two elements he either goes out and uh, looks at a historic figures portfolio, uh, creative director's portfolio, and, and goes through and interviews them if they're still alive and shows all their historic advertising. It's absolutely brilliant. Or, and he has a phenomenal record in the you know, 90s up till, up till now of being responsible for some of the great uh, advertising campaigns. He will, talk, he will take one of the campaigns he's, he's done, so, you know, Adidas or Economist or um, uh, Mercedes, and he will show the kind of evolution of his thinking. He'll put the awful stuff, how he then changed it, got a bit better, went down a cul-de-sac. Yeah. And that honesty of the, I think, um, the crea- uh, uh, honesty of how crea- uh, creativity actually happens is it's very rare, rare to but see. That, that's the fascinating yeah. thing, isn't it? Because often when you see case studies of successful yeah, campaigns, yeah, yeah. right, it, it, you just think... airbrushed. This yeah. Is, yeah, I know, yeah. it's like completely... Retrospective yes. strategy is, you know, is is yeah. is common, isn't it? It's yeah. like, oh yeah, we meant this all along, you know. Whereas actually, it's probably yes. after loads of big failures and cock-ups and all sorts of things went and wrong. Did you get that? If we have this myth yeah. of um, great ideas happening after a very simple, clear process, we all feel like failures. Yeah. Far better to be if we're more honest about how luck's involved, how we have to get through loads of mistakes to get there think it makes it easier for everyone else as well um the paper i was thinking of that talks about that wonderfully is again paul feldwick he 
does a uh, he writes a paper for exactly the reason you say. He says he's really frustrated with awards entries being airbrushed, and what he does is look at the how they genuinely at BMP came up with the idea for Bartcard and the Rowan Atkinson campaign. And it's this long story of everything going completely wrong until in a focus group, someone in a throwaway manner says, you know, this script is awful. It's just a shame didn't get Rowan Atkinson to deliver it. At least it might be a bit better then. And then they kind of jump on that and create one of the most successful campaigns of the 80s, 90s. Again, I'm in danger of misrepresenting this story, so I hope hope it's Uh, correct. But apparently the FCUK idea came from, um, the the, the creative was literally in the reception of the client and saw a fax come in um, from one part of French Connection to another. And and they'd shortened it to FCUK, you know, from from another department to FCUK. And he looked at it and he went, genius. (laughs) And apparently he changed the entire presentation to the client to go, I've I've cracked it. And it was from a fax he saw in the reception of the the agency. I just, if that's true... I, I've heard it a few I've times. Certainly, I, I've certainly heard it that would be as well. Amazing, and but what a good example yeah. of. But I think um, it's the famous Vorsprung Dirk technique. I'm sure that might have been used as well by the client, and I'm, maybe I'm getting this one wrong, but I'm sure that one was used by the the client as well. But that I think is a phenomenal skill. Seeing what everyone else has walked past and ignored, seeing the potential value of that, taking it away, and putting at the heart of your is, is an amazing skill nice no, mm. brilliant that's, that's absolutely brilliant thank you richard um so listen if someone wants to find out more um how can they follow you get in touch so i uh tweet and i just tweet about social psychology and advertising at the handle at r uh, so that's one way or drop me an email at r 189 at gmail.com memorable yeah okay fantastic (laughs) fantastic richard thank you so much thank you legend thank you thank you everybody for listening to the uncensored cmo it's been an absolute pleasure having you on now just to wrap up i've got one request of you i would love it if you would drop me a dm on twitter at uncensored cmo and let me know who you think i should have on the show if you'll do that for me I will send you a bottle of pink Moe. What could be fairer than that? Um, I would genuinely really appreciate it, so please do that. James, and finally, how can what should people do now? Well, we would really, really also appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help the podcast grow. If you've got a friend who wants to listen to the best new marketing podcast out there, please do share it with them. Share the, this episode on Twitter, share it on LinkedIn. Let's push this podcast far and wide.